0: Hello and welcome to Discussions in Tunbridge Wells, the psychology and mental health podcast produced by the Salomon Centre for Applied Psychology in Kent. My name is John McGowan and I'm a psychologist in the centre. Today, from the background noise, some people may be able to work out that we're not actually at the Salomon Salomon Centre, but we're doing our first outside broadcast. Podcast? I don't know, that it doesn't sound quite right. More on that in a minute. Uh, Our topic today is the politics of mental health and to help us with that, we're very excited to have two special guests. So I'd like to introduce Akiko Hart, the Chair of ISPS, the International Organisation Promoting uh, Psychological and Social Approaches to Psychosis, the Chair of ISPS UK. Uh, Akiko is also uh, a trustee of the Hearing Voices Network and works for Mind in Camden. Welcome.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And also Mark Brown, better known as Mark1and4 on Twitter. We had various discussions about how to introduce you. You um, went for a writer, which is probably underselling you considerably. Um, (laughs) Or overselling, depending on how next year goes. You've been a very good friend to us in terms of the teaching on the course, um, on our clinical psychology course, but welcome and thanks very much to both of you for coming along. It's a pleasure i also joined by our regulars, Anne Cook and Rachel Terry.
2: Hello.
0: Hello. Uh, and it allows me to link to the question, where are
2: we? Uh, Location. Where are we right now? We are <laughs> where <laughs> are we right now? Right <laughs> side broadcast. I
3: thought you meant where are we with rela- re- relationship to uh, progress on mental health. Uh, we are in the foyer of the National Theatre on the South Bank in London, and very nice it is too, although slightly noisy intermittently.
0: We thought it would be quiet and deep pile carpets. Okay, well let's let's cut straight to it and uh, and get right in the politics of mental health. It's, this is obviously quite a big issue, but I suppose where it started coming up for me was the idea that it does feel that in the last ten years, particularly, really, this is, and the last five years especially, this has really, really come up the agenda of politics and policy. Uh, things like the Mental Health Act review, various initiatives. We'll talk about those later, but why? Why are we talking about mental health now in a way that maybe we weren't talking about a few years ago?
4: Well, I think there's kind of a lot of really interesting things have happened in relation to mental health. We do live in what we might call the post-time to change moment, so we've had a kind of concerted ten years of quite broad kind of anti-stigma work, which is kind of really, I think, got the public, the general public to be really thinking about mental health as an issue and kind of the effect of that I think politically is really, really interesting because in a lot of ways people who experience mental health difficulties now have the political position of the newest and least complicated worthy victims. It used to be that you could show how humane your society was or how kind or caring your society was based on its attitude to people who were unemployed or people who were recent immigrants and we've been through 10 years of kind of checking off those people and going yeah we're not going to be as kind to them as we used to be and people with mental health difficulties have kind of presented this kind of new horizon for kind of politicians to be able to say we are good people, we care about people. And it's kind of very interesting for me that in some ways the larger mental health charities have kind of colluded in this, in that we've tended historically to applaud every single little tiny thing that happens that might look positive about mental health. So sort of, in terms of politics and mental health, mental health is on the agenda as something where you can announce something that is very, very tiny, that has next to no spending implication whatsoever, and have huge amounts of column inches declaring you to be the most humane and most wonderful administration that ever sat on those colored benches in the House of Commons. And I think that—I mean that, that's what's happened, so it's kind of a battle for proving kind of goodness and virtue. Yeah. Virtue signaling. <laughs> You're nodding. Yeah,
1: no, I would agree with that, Um, especially um, the term virtue signalling. I think it's interesting when we look at the surge of interest in mental health. It's only certain aspects of mental health, I think, where there's been a lot of um, energy spent. So um, if we think about some of the, the slogans that are flying around, you know, one in four people experience mental health difficulties at any one point, or we all have mental health. You know, most of the, the, the oxygen really has been taken up by mental health awareness campaigns and about looking at things like depression or anxiety, but actually very, very little policy or practice has actually been focused on other aspects of mental health which probably occupy the, the thoughts of most people working in mental yeah. health and using mental health services. So I think there's a disconnect, profound disconnect, between what's happening in mental health policy and what's actually happening in mental health.
0: Mm. Can you give us an example of... That ah, you think is on your mind. I, I think that the sense that sense of disconnect so is something I, I don't know about you, Rachel and Anne, but I certainly feel too.
1: Yeah, I think that one of the the big themes. so, so I think that most of the major parties' mental health manifestos look broadly very similar and I think that's because they're written by um, the same people so there's no no real surprise there. And One of the big themes is um, around mental health awareness which is essentially delivered through mental health awareness training. If you look at the 2015 um, task force um, paper on mental health that was um, commissioned by um, Miliband I think six out of the 40 recommendations are around training, training teachers in mental health, healthcare staff in mental health, everyone in mental health. And I'm not sure that if you were to ask people using mental health services or families or carers or people delivering services, if mental health training, mental health first aid, is actually um, the most important thing on the agenda. So I think there's there's a disconnect at that level.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think there's, I mean, there's a really interesting thing when you look across those manifestos and you look more broadly about policy kind of what you very rarely see is a commitment to change the conditions of the lives of people who experience mental health difficulties so we get stuff about policy which is about health policy we get stuff that's about benefits policy we get stuff that is more broadly about awareness and changing attitudes but What hasn't happened is seeing the realities of the needs that people have in their lives as something which can be acted upon by political means. So it's almost like people with mental health difficulties are seen as people who are just like everyone else and in which case all of the policies will help them or they're seen as people who are so different that anything you choose to do would make their life better. And it's kind of very, very interesting that there's not really a conception of people who experience mental health difficulties as a kind of body within the population, within the electorate. And it kind of, it it, it occurred to me that one of the reasons for that is people who experience mental health difficulties and the organisations that represent them and things that act upon their lives, those people, we, are not seen as a political block with any sort of power so at the minute we are in the category of we're in the category of like not weed and kind of thing that you can make a policy about not importing or um, you know controlling. So the the sense that what, what what people with mental health difficulties are is a kind of policy problem, not a group of people who have actual lives and experiences and stuff like that. So the notion is really weirdly that if you could just find the bet like uh, the correct policy around mental health people with mental health difficulties would cease to exist and we'd just be shuffled back into the the normal population and that's really weird it's a bit like saying that if we could just have more diverse presenters on television (coughs) racism would disappear as if there's no real practical and structural reasons why people are disadvantaged and marginalised either because of their identity or because of their experiences and that's that's the bit that's interesting for me is that we're not that the political interaction is not with people who experience mental health difficulties. Mm. The political interaction is with the arguments around what you might do, often to prevent mental health difficulties, Mm. rather than to deal with the actual realities of people's lives. So we're not seen as a group that would be able to significantly alter the outcome of anything, because we're not seen as political actors, we're seen as a kind of Obscure and slightly um, difficult to grasp, floating miasma of problem. <laughs> Why do you think that is? I think I think it's because, well, historically, we're only about thirty years into understanding that all people with mental health difficulties are people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, like primarily, like no. I also think it's because the majority of our ideas about mental health and the lives of people who experience mental health difficulties hugely post date. The majority of our political ideas like there was nothing native in any of our large governing political ideas from the, the enlightenment onwards that actually includes the idea of neurodiversity or that people have different experiences they're all like all of our political ideas are based on in some way or another a kind of average rational man and it is always a man in those those ideologies, those sets of ideas. So, kind of with, with mental health, we're always trying to bolt the idea of mental health onto ideas in which the idea of mental health, mental health difficulty, and difference between people is, is not a native element of it. Mm-hmm. So, we're kind of like mental health is this kind of frustrating, weird anti-chamber off the side of main political discourse, which often leads to discourse around mental health being strangely airless and circular and a kind of popularity shouting contest to, to, to prove who's the most radical and the bestest.
2: Do you think that perhaps is a sort of downside of the big anti-stigma campaigns because it's a sort of giving the message that everyone is the same and we're all alike?
4: I. I I think the big anti-stigma campaigns are interesting because what we get confused with is we confuse, like, the outcomes of the tool with the tool. So, like, with anti-stigma campaigns, they're never meant to be specific and the mental health campaigns that we've had so far, the big ones, have been really specific in splitting their call call for action from the actions that people take. So, like, Tent Changes campaigning has ultimately, if you reduce it down, if you boil it down, you filter it down through all these different pipes and tubes in a laboratory, what you end up with is being nicer to people, <laughs> which is a great sentiment. And you can claim that lots of things represent being nicer to people, but the idea of being nicer is a kind of movable feast. And I think what's interesting is the closer the idea of being nicer comes to the possibility of policy change, what you then begin to see is the limits of people's idea of being nicer. Mm -hmm. It's like everyone has a limit to what they're prepared to give up, so that people with mental health difficulties might have better lives. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy to say what you would give, it's a very different question to say politically what you would give away, or what you would not do rather than what you would do. And the phrasing of everything in the positive has the notion that, yeah, if, if we all were just supernaturally nicer, then there'd just be a load of fireworks that explode, explode in the sky. And then everyone would be happy and loved, and everyone would have no problems and no historic difficulties that needed to be made up for. Marginalization wouldn't exist. In, yeah, inequality would disappear. And that's a kind of pseudo-politics. It's not really a politics. It doesn't have a graspable way that you could implement being nicer. No. And there's often resistance to the question of, well, okay, let's be nicer, but what does being nicer mean in actual policy terms? I do,
0: that has a lot of resonance for me, I think, at the moment. Um, Anne and Rachel are well-versed in my uh, feeling that we are, at the moment, to be in love with sort of magic bullets and populist solutions and magic wands and things. But would you be able to just kind of flesh out just a little bit more of this idea of what we might have to give up because yes the idea of just being nicer and kinder and more inclusive and more compassionate uh, but our, our, the own, our own head of department Margie Callan, often says that values are, are like a tea bag they're only really any good when you put them in hot water and it's so easy to say how much nicer and more compassionate we would be at an individual level at a policy level but what do we have to give up potentially or
4: Change. (coughs) I kind of think a way of thinking about it is the way historically the the rights and entitlements of people with disabilities and disabled people, capital D disabled people, Mm -hmm. um, have been regarded over the last 40, 50 years really. An example I always think of is people arguing that you can't put a ramp or a lift into Um, a listed building that's also a museum because it would spoil the fabric and spoil the experience of visiting this glorious Tudor house. And it's actually, no, what you have to give up is your glorious feeling that you're wandering around this place as it's always been and soaking in its history so that some other people who aren't you can have the same experience. Just on a very basic level, the argument about whether you can make things accessible to people with disabilities, um, you see pushback about how it spoils it for everyone else. How can this minority spoil things for everything else, like everyone else? So I think we don't get to that practical discussion, because it's really uncomfortable. And certainly for people with mental health difficulties, it's very, very difficult for us to conceive of the things that cause us difficulty as problems that could be solved by things changing, rather than problems that could be solved by us changing. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, no I think I think that, that's really key. I was invited to um, help out with the mental health policy of um, a political party and the brief was can you make it really, really good but um, we don't <laughs> want to spend any money mm. and that's kind of the key isn't it because um, policy is all fundamentally about money, there's a limited amount of money there and you know how you choose to spend it will reflect the values of your party and what you're hoping to achieve. And you can kind of see this in terms of the, the political parties' mental health manifestos. Most political parties talk about ring-fencing, spending on mental health, particularly spending on children and adolescents, because that's a vote winner. Like, who's going to object to spending money on children and adolescents? And there's usually something there around spending money on veterans' mental health, because again, they vote. It's not going to cost that much. They're also very worthy, as well. Victims. Very, very worthy, exactly, exactly. But where is the spending on people who are long-term ter- long users of mental health services, who might go into hospital a couple of times a year, who might um, use their local Mind um, Day Centre before it closed? Wh- where are those people in the political conversation? I don't see them.
4: Yeah, I think it's there's, there's kind of, certainly politically of the past, Certainly, from the late 70s, there's been discomforts around, say, the spending on disability benefits and the weighting of that particular basket. There's just an idea that we've been spending too much on disability benefits. Yeah. And if you look at the statistics of it, someone just decided it was too much, yeah. just to, yeah. in, in the, the, the sort of, the atmosphere of the time, they decided it was too much. And that kind of, there's a really, really interesting thing that happens. And for me, it goes back to this idea of worthiness. We found it easier to make political um, decisions and political arguments about spending and mental health when the people who would be the recipients of the spending are kind of morally pure. And there's a big problem with politics and the idea of acquired disability. So generally speaking, since the late 70s, we shifted spending on disability more to people who are born with disabilities rather than people who require them in adulthood because people who require them in adulthood are morally suspect. It might be their own fault. They might just be messing about. They might just be swinging the lead. And mental health, if you add mental health to that, that overall drift, you get the argument, well, how can you tell that someone's ill? How can you tell it's not their own stupid fault for filling themselves full of drugs at age 15? How can you tell it's not their own stupid fault for not having a really good job and being awesome and having a nice suit like I do? There's a kind of, there's a moral conflictedness about the status of mental health because we you know sort of we love the idea that the people can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and by definition mental health difficulties are difficulties that are beyond your own personal resources to resolve without assistance from other people um, and we've we've cast we've cast you know reliance on other people as dependency or scrounging over the last 10 years and People, you know, people who are in and out of hospital, people who have, do do have long-term mental health difficulties, are not kind of simple, simpering, easy to do good for. People, they're people with experiences and beliefs and ideas and wishes and hopes. You know, they're people. Bizarrely, like who would have thought it. Um, but that makes them much more difficult to, to make political capital out, and it makes them much more difficult to make other people who don't care about them care about them. Yeah,
3: and it's not helped by the association in the public mind of mental health and violence as well, mm-hmm. which is, mm-hmm. you continually get, like the recent mm-hmm. coverage, for example. Well, it's one, it's
0: something that certainly seems to me to go quite deeply into uh, our past, particularly in Europe and the Western world, I mean, we've talked about this quite a lot in a pub talk that we gave about this, you know, an equivalence between kind of moral failings and, and mental health, which goes, you know, Hogarth and The Wake's Progress, you know, where else is The Wake going to end up but Bedlam after a life of, you know, boozing and organising, and spending, spending money, and... Well, I wonder if while it feels that we're away from a narrative of moral failings, we really aren't at all. Actually, we really, really aren't at all. And in some sense, I wonder if anti-stigma campaigns are really about that. You know, you're not a moral failure in some way. You are sick. And that has been you know, the, the dominant narrative of those and the, the primary message. But you you mentioned the different parties a couple of times at Kiko, and I was just wondering, we all had a, a wee look at the... Um, there's a, the Mental Health Foundation had some links to the different parties' manifestos. I mean, I know it's hard sometimes to work out what manifestos mean and don't mean and what can be achieved and can't be achieved. And some of the promises are terribly airy and some of them are terribly specific. But, but what did we make of them? Because in one way there might be real differences between them, but in one way they might, as you're saying, Mark, be rooted in quite universal assumptions that just cut across all of them. What did, what did we make of what are different pl- the people who aspire to represent us, say?
1: Yeah, I mean, the first thing is for me, um, the really interesting thing, is that none of them are particularly exciting. And that really surprises me because I find mental health really, really exciting. And if you compare the conversations that are happening within mental health, the radical, interesting, exciting ideas that are around, the fact that there are are so many things that are contested within mental health, none of this is reflected in the mental health policies of the major political parties, which leads me to think, well, who are they talking to? You know, which views are being reflected there? So that's the first thing. And the second thing is that I see more commonalities than differences between their positions. So with the exception of the Labour Party, which pushes for welfare reform within its mental health policy, and i would argue that that's not a mental health policy per se it has a huge impact on mental health but that's a core policy focus of the labour party they all seem broadly similar which is um, as mark was saying you know let's all be nicer to each other through more mental health awareness campaigns and let's make sure that we spend as much money as we were before um, on the same things as we were spending them on before, and um, let's fund children and less mental health services, and a few other things. Yes. That's basically uh, the picture. Yes. Yeah, as
3: if there were no controversies in mental health. It's a bit sort of motherhood and apple pie. Uh, no, no mention of the kind of inherent tensions that there might be, for example, between um, a paternalistic, risk-averse approach and a human rights approach, which are the you know the, the big things we all argue about all the time. It's as if those arguments didn't exist.
2: I think that's true they're all they're all trying to stay on very safe ground but I think there were things that were quite interesting for a start I thought it was interesting as you say many of the um, parties do talk about broader factors not just mental health specifically when they're considering mental health which I think is important and relevant so lots of the parties talk about debt management for example when they're talking about mental health and I was really pleased to see that in there not necessarily just from the parties that you might expect. So Labour did talk about support around debt management, as did the Conservatives. Um, Also, there was was factors around um, support for businesses, um, around supporting people with disabilities into work, which I do think is very relevant around mental health, increasing the access to work scheme. I thought that was really important. I also like the Green Party policy around four-day working week, which I think is slightly more radical and would potentially have a big impact on mental health. So for me, there were some interesting things in there. Um, Just just quickly, the other thing that I thought was quite important was, um, Anne, you were saying about much of it was around the status quo, but I think sometimes that's because we don't have lots of evidence around things that might be better or different. And so for me, one of the things I liked in in the um, policies was around more spending on research in mental health, which I think is really key, and also comes out of the Mental Health Act review as well. So I was pleased to see that in both of these um, areas. So I think that's really important.
0: I wonder if this might be a good moment, yesterday I interviewed a colleague of ours, uh, Dr Trish Jocelyn, who has worked for a long time in child and adolescent mental health, and one of the points that she raised was about the kind of funding crisis that we've got that it is a genuine funding crisis and one of the ways that she was rooting that it's not all about resources per se but it's partly about how we identify people's problems and distress and the lenses to which we do that so let's go to that interview now. I'm here with my colleague Trish Jocelyn. Trish now the reason that I wanted to speak to you about this are so two reasons really. One is that you're obviously a uh, child and adolescent clinical psychologist, and have been so for a number of years and the second factor was I know you have been looking at and reviewing mental health focused initiatives among children and young people and the sort of some of the history of that and how effective some of those things have been so hello hello okay we're hearing quite a lot about a crisis in child and adolescent mental health so is is there first of all is there a crisis (laughs)
5: Well I think there is a crisis. I don't know if it's a crisis in mental health. I think when people talk about it it sounds like there's a kind of epidemic amongst children and adolescents and suddenly mental health problems have appeared that weren't there before. But I think I think there is a crisis in that there is a lot of people asking for a service that isn't there and that's causing a lot of problems.
0: So in some sense are you saying that Lots of these problems have been there already, but perhaps identified in a different way.
5: I think identified and dealt with in a different way and dealt with in different places.
0: So what's the difference then between 15 years ago, 20 years ago and now then in terms of the way things are being viewed and seen and dealt with?
5: Well, I, I think that a lot of things are being called sort of mental health problems and I think that in order to get a service you now need to have something that can be recognizably described with a diagnosis in a way that a lot of the criteria for getting services are around a diagnosis so that's kind of upped the ante a lot I think a lot of that started with probably ADHD and autism so attention deficit attention deficit disorder hyperactivity disorder where uh, there seemed to be a medication So suddenly a problem that would have been perhaps in the past seen as a behavioural or an attention problem had something that could be given a medication and given a name and so a lot of people wanted help with that problem so they started going to mental health services which is the only place that they could get the medication that was going to cure the problem. Is that a bad thing? Because I'm always always Mm. aware that when I
0: talk to some colleagues about this they'll say well you know we're medicating kids that's a bad it's a bad thing is it a bad thing or is it is it a good thing
5: i I think it i think it's both i think it's both a bad thing and a good thing i think that um there are kids for whom the medication is very very helpful i think there are kids that probably have managed an education that they wouldn't have managed otherwise without the medication but i think it's also possible that there are kids well, I'm sure it's, it's definitely true that there are kids whose other problems are being ignored or not understood. And they're sort of being channeled down a kind of medication route as being the simplest way of dealing with those problems rather than looking at kind of what the root causes are
0: so that is mm. potentially one of the downsides i mean we talk about mm. this as you know a lot you've heard yeah. <laughs> myself and i'm mm. drawing mm. on about this mm. kind of thing absolutely endlessly you needn't agree quite so eagerly uh, when i use the word droning <laughs> but, um, <laughs> the that some of the downsides of really actively seeking uh, a diagnostic label might be a kind of narrowing yeah of the lens yeah yeah
5: yeah and no, absolutely and and i think the problem with autism Um, um, is that it is actually to do with funding in schools in that in order to get extra funding for say a learning support assistance in schools you need to have a recognised problem. So it's not to do with need, it's to do with having labels. And autism was one of the few labels that had originally, a long time ago, actually been associated with getting extra support. So parents and teachers that were, you know, desperate for these kids to get extra support would you know, chase this label of autism and it was one of the few ways that kids could get extra support in class. So that then became another place where people had to go to child and adolescent services in order to get a diagnosis, in order to get the extra support, which wasn't based on necessarily on need, but based on having this kind of label. So it's kind of different from, say, a learning disability, where whether a child, the kind of level of how much money they get is based on what kind of need they have. It, it is based. It's based on kind of whether or not you have this label. That you know, I think. I mean, I'm you know, I'm, I'm talking about kind of. This is just like one problem, but it, I think it's how mental health services suddenly seem to be child mental health services seem to be the place that. If you had a problem with a child that's where you had to go because they became the only place that you could get these kind of labels that were then associated with extra help. Whereas I think if you were talking 20 years ago if you had ch- children with these kinds of problems you would be starting, you would have started probably in different places so they're would have been more counsellors in schools that were seeing these kids. There would have what been kind of more counsellors in yeah, that sense, yeah, <coughs> actually, as in therapists, or actually, yes, actually, therapist counsellors, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like, um, like you have in adults, uh, um, like uh, GP surgeries, those kinds of counsellors. Um, in, and and you had much more help for parents, so you know, the child guidance clinics, you know, were were largely, often largely seeing parents to help them manage their children's problems. I think, you know, these problems, you know, were tackled in lots of different places, but, and I think that that was the beginning of a kind of mental health utilisation, if such a word existed, of children's problems, which, um, has just resulted in you know masses more referrals to children's services. I think and then you know on top of that, you know you have the, the you have the inter- internet, you have social media. people are beginning to recognize and kind of understand the problems within these in, within these terms. you know parents are a lot more literate in mental health kind of terminology children adolescents are so they're beginning to see oh well look you know I'm up and down in my moods you know I must have uh, you know I must have this or I must have that or you know you, uh, you know adolescents are coming to services saying you know I think I've got this I think I'm bipolar that's not even a that's not even a label that you give children, according to DSM 5. So, you know. Are you suggesting yeah. that
0: that is a kind of pathologising of, for want of a better word, you know, something within a normal spectrum? I,
5: I, think, I think it is. I think it is. Um, but I think it's not so much that it's pathologising it, it's just that it's narrowing how we un- understand it and that. It means that kind of families are not thinking about, you know, why is my young, you know, is the young person think, acting in this way, or, you know, or thinking about developmental understanding enough, I think. So I think, I mean, it's all become a huge industry really, um, but it, it's an underserviced industry. So you can't create this huge demand you know, which has seen referrals 10 times as much as when i first started easily 10 times maybe 20 as many referrals for one person so and and yet there's not been a, a, a huge increase in what services are available
0: so what kind of initiatives are going at the moment to try and address this well the crisis mm. you know crisis, it, yeah. and it, you're categorizing a real crisis in the mm. sense that there mm. aren't sufficient anything like sufficient resources or for the demand that is present but what kind of initiatives what are the main initiatives going in child mental health at the moment because I know that it's mm. not completely something that hasn't attracted you know there is some money and some resources going into it there
5: is some money and some resources and I think some things that are happening are very thought out and sensible so there is more resources going into sort of perinatal services. So understanding that a lot of problems that may not appear to adolescent might start with, um, you know, developmental trauma or, or children or young babies not getting the the kind of resource they need from their caregivers in terms of being able to, you know, help them to develop emotional regulation, for example, and being able to think About their feelings. So, I think the help for kind of maybe mothers that are depressed or that's very positive. I think there's more money has gone into eating disorder services because it's recognized that um, this is kind of a, a very dangerous problem for adolescents. Um, is that hear. something
0: that's changing in, well, we're in a kind of new world still and probably will be a new world for some mm. time in the sense of the. Uh, power of being able to share uh, feelings and information globally really among people um, and I suppose one of the areas where I've heard concern expressed about that is to do with eating disorders mm. Is, mm. That, is that something mm. to think about yes yeah no. that understood
5: what you mean people sort of catching you know, learning about how to not eat from each other mm-hmm. well basic, yeah yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah probably a bit <laughs> more than that but uh, <laughs> at, at root don't yeah, want to go to no.
0: daily mail here yeah, yeah. but you know that's...
5: no no I'm, no I'm sure though i think that's that's always been the case i mean i you know you you do have eating epidemic i mean i've seen it happen in schools where You know suddenly you have 10 people appearing with with an eating disorder in the same class you know it's uh, Mm -hmm. um you know it becomes very competitive and uh, you know maybe eight out of ten of those will not manage it because it's actually very difficult to starve yourself but two will manage it you know Mm -hmm. so i think it is it is it is something that people learn can learn from each other Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, you know this the same is true for cutting for overdosing you know Mm -hmm. Um, all these things that young people didn't used to do and are doing now earlier and earlier you know i've i've, I've seen sort of 9 year olds suicide attempts i mean that's just unheard of um, know, this is not know.
0: necessarily something that was there already no
5: i don't think it, no i don't think it was i think i think you would have a distressed 8 and 9 year olds but how they express that distress would have been different mm. um, they would they wouldn't have been trying to sort of cut themselves so i think you know i think that, that that is a downside of the of social media i mean i think there are lots of the i think the other big downside of social media and i think a lot of people are talking about it is the fact that it's 24 hours mm-hmm. you know that it's uh, that kids can't switch off from social relationships outside mm-hmm. of school they're there you know all the time day and night and that they get no rest from that and if they're being bullied or even if they're finding it hard you know that that's not a choice for them to switch off uh so i think you know those kinds of things have have increased stress on 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 our Mm. kids particularly on adolescents and particularly on girls actually
0: i mean one thing that has come up it's obviously come up in the context of our own university and other universities but also i guess schools as well and I was thinking of it in the context of what you were saying about school, you know, guidance counsellors and mm, counsellors mm. and school is the idea of mental health first aid, which I have extremely mixed feelings actually about. But can you give us a little bit of an outline of what that is or what it might bring or not mm. to the table?
5: Um, well, my, like quite a lot of other government initiatives, uh, there isn't... a. L- there isn't a lot of evidence for oh. mental health first aid, and, and to and an actually, extent, I suppose yeah, policy has yeah. to
0: run a better head of evidence. Well, you'd
5: kind something. of want to produce something that, if you were putting a lot of money into it, you want to one show it had mm-hmm. quite a good evidence base. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some evidence for it in adults, but the big evidence it has um, is actually that it um, reduces stigma around mental health. Mm-hmm. Which, yay, that's a good thing. But is it a good thing? Because here am I saying, you know, these kids are kind of being overdiagnosed, and so it's okay to have a diagnosis, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about that.
0: So the possibility yeah. is that it would encourage more things to be seen within the lens of uh, mental health yeah. diagnoses yeah. that may or may not be appropriate i
5: think I mean, I think what the government is trying to do though it's not entirely clear. I think what they're trying to do is reduce I- I- is what they call early intervention, so they're they're trying to catch sort of young people in when when they're kind of when before their problems become enormous and they have to go to mental health services, so they're trying to sort of catch those problems early um and and help people with those problems i think i think that's kind of not really going to work because what will you what will happen is you're going to start finding an unmet sort of the huge unmet need that is out there when when you've got mental health services which are only seeing i don't know one or two percent of children Mm -hmm. then if you start looking at all the kids that are in schools that have are not you know that have got problems that are unmet then you're going to produce an enormous number of children with problems for which there will be nowhere to go and the mental health first aid is training it will be training one or two teachers to kind of take a lead on mental health first on kind of helping some with some basic basic principles and understanding and recognizing mental health problems I mean that's my concern is that they'll start recognizing these mental health problems and Um, start referring to mental health services that can't meet the demand at the moment so and and there is evidence that that you can do things in schools Um, there is evidence that you know good relationships between teachers and pupils can really help young people with problems uh, particularly home problems school you know schools can be a, a great sort of savior for some kids there is evidence that having a curriculum that is about understanding feelings about understanding relationships and a curriculum that goes right through school and runs through all aspects of school so isn't just like an hour a week or something that th- those kinds of practices in schools it can make a real difference and there are differences between schools I mean there's difference between schools in amount of bullying for example you know, and that, uh, and that is often to do with their uh, sort of school initiatives. So I think schools can make a difference um, to, to young people. I'm not saying they can't. I'm just saying that kind of training one or two people to recognise the, f- the kind of mental health problems is just going to increase demand on CAMs, on child and adolescent mental health services, unless schools are provided with in-house support of the right kind uh so i don't think it's going to decrease demand at all perhaps also mm-hmm. what
0: you're saying though is that policy level we could be looking at perhaps slightly different outcome measures yeah, um, yeah. in terms of the quality of the uh, environment bullying etc i know it's difficult because obviously mm-hmm. schools have a different sort of catchment areas universities too actually mm-hmm. for that matter
5: i think along as with many government initiatives, I mean, I, I did this 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 review, which is going to be in public mental health uh, coming shortly. It it actually showed that the governments hadn't really, for all previous initiatives, and there were quite a lot, particularly under the Blair government. You know, that there were some really good initiatives, but they didn't think about what are we trying to measure. You know, they didn't mm-hmm. think what are we trying to change and sort of set the measures in first so any kind of measure you know they didn't give the young people questionnaires or their families questionnaires before they started the initiatives you know which would be good practice in kind of research so much of the measurements that they used were kind of after the changes had happened after the initiatives had happened so it was hard to know whether it was a change or not because they hadn't measured Mm -hmm. them beforehand so and the same is going to happen with this with this um mental health first day because they haven't measured to see how many referral schools are making now so if the point is to reduce the reduce the number of referrals <laughs> then they don't know how many there are now you know they, they, and they haven't even said that's what they, they want to happen you know they need they need to really think about what what do we want to happen how do we measure it you know and and actually tailor their interventions to fit those targets but it's it's not
0: out like that. Okay, that was that was our colleague Trish Jocelyn uh, talking about child and adolescent mental health. And one of the things she was saying in that that interview was about the notion that we identify many, many more issues arising for children and families under a kind of lens of diagnostic mental health and that itself has caused a very real shortfall in resources because the, refer- the level of referrals to child adolescent mental health services have gone up absolutely exponentially in the last kind of 15 years and thus we are now faced with a massive funding shortfall and it seems to me that a number of the, the party policies are kind of rooted in trying to do something about that. Is that the right way to go about it? (laughs) Why
3: why was she saying that referrals have gone up
0: so much to...? Because things that would have been handled at the level of school or child guidance or family guidance are now being referred to child and adolescent mental
3: health services. Because...?
0: Because that is a gateway to help, basically.
3: Right, because there aren't the resources at the community level where they used to be, or because increasingly things are being seen through a diagnostic lens, or both?
0: things are being seen through a diagnostic lens, things are being seen through a lens where you have to do something. You know, a child comes, they cannot be seen as having ordinary issues or ordinary, um, you know, struggles of adolescence or difficult family circumstances. You, you know, you must go to a maximum kind of response, a kind of, I would guess, a kind of risk averse of response. I think
2: that's true and, problem- and problematic, but I also think there is a reality that there is higher levels of um, mental illness within children and young people. So I think Are it's there? probably. Be- I think so. Do
1: think that? The- I think that's contested. Yeah. Can you say more? Uh, not really, no, because I don't know enough about <laughs> this. But from what I've seen. Um, all these figures are contested and people interpret them in different ways. And that's one of the problems that we have with our mental health policies, that a lot of these things are taken as facts when they are in fact contested at the most basic level. <laughs>
4: I, I mean, I, I, what, what's interesting to me is, in one way or another, what we're entering, because of, because of the last 10 years of exciting anti-stigma consciousness raising, is we're entering a really... Uncomfortable era of what you might call the age of demand, which is people asking for things or asking for something when previously they may have accepted nothing. And that is a really big difference. I think what's,
6: what's super interesting for me,
4: though, around, around this particular issue around kind of young people and demand. Kind of really goes to the heart of the difference between the politics of mental health and the politics of mental health. In that, what's more important is to understand where that demand is coming from and why that demand is channeled through those particular um, areas. So, we were talking about lenses just then. Lenses are ideas, and we keep talking about ideas in mental health, and that's really important, but we keep ignoring actual practicalities and realities in mental health. So why does someone suggest to someone's parents that they should take their kid to camps? Why do someone's parents decide that their kid should go to camps? Like, like politics is, 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 the, is the manipulation of the real world, isn't it? It's understanding how the real world fits together. It's not just ideas. Ideas are ways of organizing those thoughts. So so I'm kind of like, I'm kind of more interested in, so okay, so what is actually happening in people's lives? What is happening in schools? What's happening in social work departments? What's happening in local authorities? And we talk about this next to never we talk about ideas, we start, you know, We know. sit on panels and we go on podcasts and we wang on to each other about what our ideas about stuff are, but what we don't do is the actual, or we don't have the resources to do, we don't have the time, we don't have the contacts to do, it's actually spend time working out what really is happening and how the levers of policy influence what actually happens in people's lives. Um, and we write endless op-ed pieces, we write you know, exciting comment pieces, we, we get all excited about this, we say, oh, it's definitely this, it's definitely that. But often, you know, as Akiko says, we're well, actually, like, we're on very, very stony grounds in terms of actually knowing something. So, you know, I, I can't think of anyone who's really done, and I may be wrong, but anyone who's done the work of just looking at what, like, why there is a flow between schools authorities and CAM services and why those decisions are made, um, and and how those things are made, so we end up up confusing our ideological wishes and our ideological desires with the reality of what we're actually looking at. And I think that often really, really damages discussion around mental health, because people with mental health difficulties are people, they're not representations of whether your ideology is good or not. So we end up arguing that the policy is bad because it leads to greater amounts of mental health difficulty, and we end up arguing that policy is good because it might lead to less mental health difficulty, but what we don't talk about is what the policies would be for people who have mental health difficulties, or might have mental health difficulties, or have had mental health difficulties before. So this kind of, we get confused in very, very little details and massive overarching narratives and the absence of policy my policy in those manifestos is so boring is because there's nothing in the middle no one's doing that work of working out what you would change in the world
0: political conversation not shifted at least a bit though whether you feel that this addresses what you're saying or not I don't know but I'm comparing the 2017 election, say, to the 2015 election, where the Conservatives, you know, characterised a lot of Labour Party policies as being, you know, essentially the work of the devil and, you know, the the high road to ruin, Mm. and then got a different leader, a slightly different tone, tried to adopt a number of them. And, you know, even the Conservative manifesto, it does raise at least certain things around... Social equality and homelessness and communities and things like that, in a way, you know, they're borrowing, however convincingly or not you feel, you know, traditionally different policies. Is that
4: a a real or a helpful shift? It is a shift. Mm. It's kind of the issues are on the ledger, if you like, but I'd be very suspicious of having a massive round of applause and pulling all the party poppers because someone stuck mental health in a speech once. That's, that's not the mechanisms, and that's not the mechanics of change. Like, someone saying they're really interested in something is not the same as all those cogs and gears turning in a way that has an effect on a real person, in a real place, at a real time, at a real point in their life.
3: So, if you two were Prime Minister, since we've
4: got you here, both of you... What, like a kind of, what like horrible you? mental health hydra, just <laughs> <are> two-headed. <laughs>
3: No, I was thinking I'd I'd like to ask this question of both of you. If you were Prime Minister, what would your mental health policy be?
1: I don't know, but I think what seems really important to me is that we're not listening to enough people, and that comes across really, really strongly to me in most mental health policy, and probably policy more broadly as well. I'd want to just talk to more people and have different people um, at the table and think about um, what are the kind of structural impediments to getting more people, more voices at the table. So which voices in particular are you thinking of that haven't been there? I think that, um, you know, at the most basic level, I think a lot of what's happening in terms of um, representation in um, mental health is that we say things like, OK, I'm doing like a panel and I'd like a service user and a family member and a professional and yeah. do you know someone and you phone them up yeah that's not representation um and i think that's happening at every single level in mental health so we've got like real blocks in terms of how we think about representation we think about these um, groups of people as blocks as monoliths you know clinical psychology is not a monolith neither is psychiatry neither is you know what is called the service user community Um, but we're not thinking about what are the blocks to people participating at those decisions at every level. You know, when you look at how, um, for example, BME um, service user groups have been decimated over the last 10 years um, because of funding cuts, you know, that's going to have a massive impact on, you know, wider kind of conversations around BME mental health. So, in order to have more voices at the table, you've got to create the infrastructure. It has to almost be a three, five, ten-year plan in order to get that the, the, those voices. And, and even that's imperfect.
0: And this has come up this came up very forcefully we did a podcast a few months ago with a guy called Raza Griffiths who's been a really good friend to us It was involved in a kind of participatory action research manifesto BME manifesto and he was making this point where the, the infrastructure for that document kind of emerging or being more comprehensive just wasn't there really and that was a huge challenge that's
1: right. I spoke to Raza last night, actually, um, about this, and um, why, you know, he wrote, um, he, he, he led on the, the Kindred Minds uh, Mental Health Manifesto. Yeah. Why is that a bigger thing in mental health? Why wasn't that heavily, heavily quoted in the Mental Health Act Review, for example? So even the stuff that is out there isn't necessarily folded in to, um, to, to wider uh, mental health policy, and that's incredibly disappointing. Did he have a view as to why it hasn't been used more? Um, no but I think one of the reasons was that there was a lack of funding so there was funding yeah. up to a certain point to write it but there was no funding for dissemination. Yeah. So some so really the powerful
3: groups have the loudest voice and exactly. we pay for them to be listened to.
1: Exactly, exactly and then we hear the same things and then we wonder why it's all really boring and why we keep on hearing the same things and why things don't change.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've had some
0: specific initiatives in the last few years since you know time to change um things like mental health first aid that's something that's a very big issue in schools universities we've got things like zero suicide and we've also had as you just mentioned the key for the mental health act review now maybe we can just hold the mental health act review a bit to the end because i'm aware that, that that there's a lot to say about that but what do we think of these what do we think of these initiatives and are they helping are
4: they running ahead of evidence what should we be doing them? Should we be doing something else? I think, I mean, practically speaking, politically, we are in the cons hotline period of um, policy in that basically there's nothing going to change in law until Brexit's sorted and that may take the best part of a century as far as I <laughs> can work out We were a Brexit-free zone until we us <laughs> well, No, but, but the, the point is that is, is the, is the, 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 the current hotline thing is the last years of the minority major government in the 90s there was nothing they could do because so they couldn't get anything through Parliament so what they did is they launched lots and lots of initiatives with a bit of funding because as a government you can make spending decisions um, as long as they're not ones that have to go through Parliament so you can do initiatives, you can't do anything fundamental so the initiatives can be good, can be bad but what they are is they're politically expedient you, 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 you come up with an initiative and an initiative is basically just like a paragraph on a bit of a page and then you flesh it out and it either flies or it doesn't Um, But it isn't a kind of fundamental change. It doesn't mean they can't be great and I think it it makes a lot of sense to lobby for initiatives as part of your process of change making. Like make the case for why the government should put a bit of money into a particular thing because it'll make them look good. and then you do it but then the, the problem with initiatives is initiatives are not structurally transformative mm-hmm. they are cones hotlines yeah. like, they, like having better motorways is not the same as having a telephone line where you can ring up to see whether there's any road works.
3: So what are the current examples of this like mental health
4: first aid training? Mm-hmm. Well, first aid training is not really initiative, though, is it? It's, it's, it's a business. It's a business. Yeah. Um, and, and Nonetheless caught the eye of ministers, clearly. Well, they bloody love it, don't they? Because it seems to be in a simple, one-shot, silver bullet that you could put inside your ministerial sniper rifle and shoot <laughs> right into the heart of the problem. Yeah. And it's a thing. It does a thing. Sometimes that thing's helpful, sometimes it's not. It's not, we can't have anything or we can just have that there is a whole range of different <laughs> alternatives you can have if you want to do stuff that raises awareness about mental health you could if you wanted do anything you want yeah. um, it's not a choice between mental health aid first aid and locking yourself in a cellar <laughs> and this is the trap we fall into yeah. we keep arguing with specific things rather than also broadening out our discussion about what other things could happen in the same space there is, a, there is an argument for initiatives for taking up the space that other things might occupy so again this this comes from the kind of scarcity thinking of mental health that mm. um, we should be very happy to have some crumbs therefore any crumb that comes down we have to make the best of it's so like oh there's a bit of money for mental health first aid we have to get behind it because if we don't get behind mental health first aid then it's just going to be wailing and gnashing of teeth and the skies are going to fall in because nothing else has got to happen in that space. Zero suicide is kind of interesting, I think, because it lies somewhere between an initiative and an idea. And I think it's something that can be done really well as a kind of if you turn that initiative into some policies, or it could be done really badly. But it's not in the same category as Kind of anti-stigma work, and zero suicide does suggest a series of things that you should do.
1: It does, but I wonder if it really does. I know you've done lots of work on this, John, um, and in some well, ways I, have I think you have lots of opinions on of it. Opinions it, on yeah. it. Well, and it's the ins- same Same thing. Same thing. <laughs> and I, I, you know, in some ways I think zero suicide is a genius policy because who could disagree with it? Who could disagree with you know eliminating um, suicide? And then you but it just completely bypasses all the you know, the moral, the mm. practical, the, the legal kind of like complexities <laughs> around it. But that doesn't matter because we're going to get rid of suicide. So it's, it's as you say, it's an idea with and I know John that you've written a lot about some of the practical implications of this particular idea on practice, but no one's really thinking about that apart from you of course. Um, but that doesn't matter because you can sell it as an idea.
0: Well the, the issue of how it positions you as a kid you know, a caring yeah. service that your premise is to prevent someone doing an action rather than an open stance of an open stance of care or help, I think, at a very kind of you know, micro kind of clinician level I think is a is a really tough dilemma. I, I worry about our trainees going into a world where that's the pressure and they're coming in but
3: you know workers you know workers more generally with those imperatives on them. Especially know, especially in the risk of us blaming individual blame environment that we have. But
1: there's no evidence base is there for, this is my understanding, for zero suicide being an effective policy. So my understanding was that it was, um, there was a strong opposition to it being put forward as a policy and in the end they went through it because it's, you know, it's a genius policy on so many levels. It's a very
0: eye-catching it? policy exactly. for any, any department of health minister of any government, I, I think.
1: This is it and I think sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that our policies should be or are our evidence base when actually there is no evidence for that there's a complete kind of like chasm between our policies and evidence base so
0: I mean this goes back mm. a little bit to what uh, Trish was saying in my interview which I realized I recorded so late that none of I didn't send it to any of you but what she was saying about mental health first aid actually was again this running ahead of evidence this idea of running ahead of evidence and in actual fact mental health first aid is in quite a long line of initiatives in child mental health very similar initiatives in child mental health which actually don't really set any kind of baselines or have particularly sensible kind of outcome metrics so we're very unlikely to know what it's really done or achieved for good or for hell.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of these initiatives like also rolling out of mindfulness say in schools or my children's school they did a half a day CBT training <laughs> for all the staff um, I think they're well-intentioned and they're often about increasing well-being for everybody in the school but I think if that takes away resources and thinking and time for those who are more in distress but yet it's seen as helping mental health I think that's worrying because it's taking resources away from perhaps those where it's really needed so maybe well-intentioned but not necessarily a good idea and also dumbing down a lot of our ideas and thinking which isn't necessarily helpful either. I don't think.
0: Well, I know you Anne worry about the pathologising of childhood yeah. as well, I know that's a big issue for you.
4: Yeah, absolutely. i um, but just going kind to of pick you up on the idea of pathologizing your childhood. That seems that pathologizing would be terrible. It's like if I had leukemia, I'd think, awesome, please pathologize me because I don't want to die of blood cancer. So there's, there's an assumption that pathologizing always leads to malign outcomes. That's a political assumption. It's not a practice assumption. You know, pathologizing of childhood ills might be great if there is, at the other end, things that help you with those childhood ills. I don't necessarily see that being able to say that someone has a particular condition or a particular difficulty is necessarily a terrible winnowing away of their humanity and a reduction of the possibilities available in their life. And I think in practical terms, actually, that in the current political situation, that is your gateway to additional help and additional support. Um, I think there's a generational difference in this. I think younger people who experience mental health difficulties do not have the same fear across certain conditions Of being pathologised, because you tend to, you know, they tend to see it more in terms of, well, that acceptance of what you might call a diagnostic label is what allows me to access these legal levers and these practical levers. Um, I think it depends on
3: the available responses or the likely responses, doesn't it? So, for example, the help that you might get if you accept a label of depression might be very different from the interventions that you might receive if you had a label of say personality
4: disorder. So I think there's a real difference. But there's a lot the, 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 between, between, the... between those poles. Yes. So so some people will claim that ADHD doesn't exist. Some people will claim that all mental health and diagnoses doesn't don't exist. Um Nico well, that that's great. I'm I'm certainly enjoying myself, you know, sunning myself in the, the shining glory of your virtue but I don't see what that's going to do to help me tomorrow and I think this is where I get back to the politics it's like the, the, discussing the, the ideas and the concepts and the philosophical independence of stuff is great and we have many seminars on that many symposiums many you know journal articles about it but when it comes down to it someone wakes up in the morning and they go why is my life so freaking terrible Something that
1: um, you and I have um, spoken about quite a bit, Mark, is this, for me, this really interesting, um, these convergences and disconnect between um, politics of mental health and politics more broadly, and the really interesting and sometimes unholy alliances that can come up, and something that you just said really reminded me of it, and, um, you know, for example, If we think about um, some of the um, the positions that we take in mental health, there's obviously a really strong um, anti-medication position that's out there. And what's really, really interesting about that is that that actually cuts across um, the political divide. So if you were to look, for example, at the recent um, campaign against um, the overuse uh, and overprescription of um, benzodiazepines and sleeping pills, which was led by the Council for Evidence-Based Psychiatry, where that campaign got the most traction was in the right-wing press, it was in the Spectator, it was in the Daily Mail, it was in the Telegraph, it wasn't in the Guardian, and you see exactly the same um, convergences in America um, a lot with, with, with this particular issue. So it just feels really, really interesting to me that sometimes the political positions that we take, because I think a lot of the people who are advocating for, um, a, a against the overuse and overprescription pres- over of medication probably take a more broadly speaking left-wing view politically, that isn't always backed up by, um, by wider political positions. Mm. So the question is,
4: is always who are you liberating? Do they want to be liberated and what is it you're liberating them from? And also, who are your bedfellows in that? Because people love to think that they are the most radical person thinking about mental health and fighting for this higher ground of radicalism. And it's often for me kind of quite naive in thinking about where that fits into the broader political spectrum. So you can advocate for the abolition of all mental health diagnoses. And then someone can just go, well, actually, that does mean that someone will no longer have any legal rights to reasonable adjustments in their workplace. You go, ah, well, we'll sort that out afterwards once we've done the abolition bit, which is more exciting to me. That's what I mean about the difference between ideas and politics and leaders and kind of how things happen.
0: Well, I do wonder about this in the context of you know, the kind of discussions that I had in the ivory towers of universities where people can get very clear cut about these kind of things, and certainly my experience working for many years in services was about well, how the hell do you help people and what is going to be the most helpful lens to offer through which to look. I suppose the thing that concerns me about something like mental health first aid is not medication, medication might be fine, it's not even mental health diagnosis, it's about a potential narrowing of the lens through which you see people and difficulties really potentially that you know you have a hammer and everything looks like a nail rather than trying to look at broader social factors or family factors all of a sudden it's kind of all inside the kid basically and that whenever I see that close up it always I have quite a strong emotional reaction Mm. uh, to it whenever I encounter it directly you know friends of mine kids and things and things like that Mm. But I wonder if, before we stop, as we've got you both here, and you've both written pretty extensively about this, and so I'm aware that this topic could keep us going for another hour, but the Mental Health Act Review, obviously before Christmas the results of this were announced, and so we now have a concrete set of proposals from Simon Wesley's Mental Health Act Review Panel. I know both of you have written about this quite prominently, so where are we? in the aftermath of that. Are we disappointed? Are we excited? Um, What what do we all
4: think about that? Am am I correct in saying that two of the recommendations have been accepted? Yes. Can you remind me which two? The
1: ECT-1 and the nearest relative.
4: So so the, the, what one, sorry? the
1: ECT one, so advanced um, decisions about IC, uh, ECT being um, clinically binding. They're still not legally binding. They can be overturned um, in the courts, but mm-hmm. they're more cl- they're more binding than they used to be. Mm-hmm. And um, the nearest relative
2: being changed mm-hmm. to be a nominated person. Yes. Mm-hmm. From now. Oh, I'm oh. Not sure. No, work, I'm not sure how these when. things are
0: enacted mm-hmm. in law. I'm not. Quite, presumably, they require some attention mm-hmm. from. Parliament, if
4: Parliament's got any time to do anything at the moment, I'm, other than I'm Brexit, sure. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure because um, the majority of the recommendations from the Mental Health Act aren't really about changes in law. Yes. The actual, mm-hmm. the actual modifications to the text of the Mental Health Act Revision 2007, I think, correctly, um, are actually very, very minimal. Mm-hmm. The one that made me laugh most was um, the, the the recommendation that the section in the Mental Health Act about voluntarily detaining someone um, should be moved up the text above the one about detaining people against their will. So then more people read it and then it will definitely happen. That, that made me laugh, it's like, yeah, but that means you'll have to pass that through Parliament because <laughs> it's changed the Act. Um, so, so two of those, those have been accepted. The, the majority for me of the other recommendations, I think rely on two things. They rely on the NHS mental health 10 year plan, which is coming sometime maybe, like anarchy in the UK. <laughs> and then they also rely on the social care green paper, which is probably fading into the matching green of the grass that it's currently sitting in. It depends on those, sort. in those ways, the mental health Act being, has, has ended up being kind of advisory to some other levers of change and I think that that's interesting so it'll work its way into what's being written in those two other elements. Those recommendations kind of turn into ideas which may find their way into other levers of policy or policy enactment so it's it's interesting that it's a review of the Mental Health Act but it's kind of a review that is more like a review of a record in that it looked at the Mental Health Act and it said these are good bits, these are bad bits, and here's the bits that I really like and here's how I would do it better. But it doesn't really, for me at least, suggest anything fundamentally structurally should be altered around the Mental Health Act. I think in terms of the document itself, there was... A fair amount of original research <laughs> carried out in terms of it i think that's that's really interesting but it doesn't necessarily fulfill the promise of a mental health act review and what was interesting for me was looking at the mental health act review f- through the, the perspective of someone who might be subject to it there's less and less detail and less and less goodies closer and closer to the experience of finding yourself in danger or a danger to others and having your rights removed from you for your own good. I thought like, it's really interesting if you kind of track it through what might happen to someone. The bits that are furthest away from being altered by the Mental Health Act Review um, are the bits closest to how someone would experience the experience of being sectioned and detained against their will. So it's, like, it's almost like it started from the perspective of the institution rather than the person.
6: Yeah.
4: Mm -hmm. Um, But I I wasn't involved in it. I'm very much a distant observer in that process.
3: Mm. Um, So do you feel that even if it's enacted, nothing much will change for the individual who's being sectioned, for example?
4: I, I think the things that will change will change if there's a political will to change them. So the commitment to no one being taken to hospital or moved in a police car requires a commitment from um, commissioning trusts, ambulance trusts, to commission specific um, mental health ambulances. That's, that's way down the, the, the waterfall of the policy. Um, commissioning from CCGs of appropriate services, the improvement of, of inpatient facilities, is a spending decision for trusts. Um, what, you know, what we do know is we can't get CCGs to spend money that they've been given to spend on mental health, on mental health. But what we don't know is the reasons why they don't do that spending, because it's kind of quite reasonable not to spend money on something you think is going to be terrible. So, the CCG deciding, actually, I'm not going to commission that from you because you're a bunch of knobs and are terrible at delivering services. But there isn't currently a delib- You know, there isn't a, an organisation that can deliver comparative service in our local authority um, area, our CCG area. It's kind of quite reasonable. So we don't even really understand why people don't do the spending. So kind of, t- I feel that, that the change is not in the document.
1: So it's a wish list. Yeah. Well, it's not even that, is it? I mean.
4: I, I see some quite boring wishes. It's if that was my wish list, it's like, Santa could you bring me some socks and a new protractor? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it uh, is or a nice boring. award yeah. environment,
0: uh, which it's people have been bashing on about forever. Well, really. and this is and it.
1: This and it's very much, I think, the, the Mental Health Act review for me, part of it is very much, um, it's almost a prep. Preparatory piece of work for the 10-year the the 10-year funding plan and it's a way for Simon Wesley to get SMI you know onto um, the political agenda. Serious mental serious mental illness, which and because there's the argument that, and we're going back to the the, the beginning of our conversation now, that um, initiatives like mental health first aid have sucked up the oxygen and there's been so much focus on that part of mental health that we haven't (laughs) exactly that we haven't focused enough on the sharper end of services and that's what he would like to do and throughout actually one of the key themes in this wish list uh, which is uh, in, in the Mental Health Act Review is better buildings you know more spending on mm-hmm. capital projects um, mental health wards yes, absolutely. and that's I think where we'll see the change mm. if that happens, if there is the political will to make that happen because that's again, it's a little bit like zero suicide it's it's an easy thing to mm. deliver nicer buildings but, but it's oh. just more of the same rather yeah, than exactly radically
3: easy. thinking exactly. You know, how do we respond yeah. to people in crisis should it but be a ward necessary it's a, ni-
0: it's a nicer yeah. thing to say whether it's a nicer thing to achieve those are uh, piece in the in the Guardian um, yesterday, I think it was about the government falling somewhere short of their staffing increased targets, yes. so you, know, you can say 20,000 people but the actual reality of delivering that for any party is, is going to be difficult, and capital projects are you know, it does feel like a list of a, you know, aspirations I'm not saying there's nothing in it, because there are some things yeah. that are real, yeah. and real changes but I am very much of your mind there I think Mark that when you actually get down to it for me I think the big thing was what's the basis of confinement against your will yep. and it draw, still draws this very very hard line we still have the Mental Health Act yes. um, and we still have the Mental Capacity Act yep. and we're not going to only detain you against your will if you lack capacity yes, I knew s- this wasn't going to happen but I would like it They didn't even
4: say why They, just <laughs>
0: they don't it, say it, why no, It just said a, we, we're not hmm. going
4: to do that I think that it is, is worth bearing in mind if we're talking about small p politics that the, the Mental Health Act review process had to in some way provide something that satisfied a very, very diverse and broad base of different people. So if you can imagine in a kind of multiverse all of the different parallel universe versions of that document based on following particular people's real areas yeah. of interest what you've kind of got is, is the kind of Combination of all of those, and I think there is, there is, you know, as Kiko was saying, that there is a kind of prevailing political reason for why some of those things are given emphasis and some aren't. But I do think it's an absolutely it was a nightmarish thing to try and bring together. I think the focus on, on people who have mental health difficulties that don't go away is really interesting, and I would hope that one of the things we can take away from this moment is. <laughs> progressively over a period of decades people who experience mental health difficulties that are more severe and which don't go away have been left further and further away from meaningful help and support yep. and they're the people who well, we don't even know do we? we don't we don't know whether the, the, the statistics about sectioning are a very small amount of people who get sectioned loads or whether it's a wide range of people who are only sectioned once, we don't like. We don't. We don't know. We don't know who. And we also don't know how many um, experiences are being held under section turn into hospitalisation under section. We don't know the connection between those two things. We've got two different sets of stats. So what we don't actually really know very much about. We should do, and we know anecdotally, and we know because of the people we care about, and the people we hang out. With is what people's lives are like when their mental health difficulties don't disappear. When they, when you have a mental health difficulty, it means that you're not just shuffled back into normal life. Because um, they're the people who have been very much harmed by the focus on prevention. Mm-hmm. It's like, the argument to those people has been, well, we need to not spend money on you so those young people over there don't turn out like you. <laughs> and it's like, well, wow, that is, that's mm-hmm. wonderful. Cheers for that. So I'm just meant yeah. to... Um, I meant to live my life in poverty and terror so that someone else should have a greater life. You're taking something from me. What about those people who don't have mental health difficulties? Could you not take something from them instead? (laughs) Why is it going to be a decision between my life as someone who has a mental health difficulty and some people who might in the future have a mental health difficulty? It's back to that crumbs-from-the-table thing. And choice.
2: I do think, though, that the Mental Health Act review did make a lot of effort to hear the voices of people who have been sectioned under the Mental Health Act. I know mm. you disagree with this, mm. Akika, but I think that there was a, a big attempt to include the voices of those people and their family members. Um, and I think lots of the recommendations in the review were taken Um, from the themes that emerge from those voices, personally, and and my experience of working with people that have been sectioned over a long time in inpatient settings, I do think lots of the main problems around lack of advocacy and lack of choice, those things are coming through a lot in the review as is. I
4: thought I thought I I would raise the point that there is only one recommendation about staff conduct, and that relates to staff morale. Yep. It doesn't relate in any way to the potential for staff to cause harm. Yep.
3: Good point. And,
4: and that for me is the point where it hit listening to people and then refused to go any further. So all mental health staff are virtuous, and all bad practices to someone was tired and there wasn't enough money. Yeah. And I don't think that is real and I don't think that's true and I think that actually prevents us from talking about the situations where we do, with the best of intention, with the smiliest of faces, do terrible things to people.
2: True, but was the aim of this review to be to be talking about bad practice? That was part of it. Yeah. That was part of it. And you yeah. can
4: legislate against bad practice.
2: Well, and we should be. <laughs>
4: yeah, but we're not. But you know, Mental Health Act review. I always thought, if we were going to think about rephrasing and reframing the mental health act review, it's I'm making a contractual agreement with you that if I take away your rights, I will be contractually obliged to do this instead of your rights. Very uncomfortable, but at the minute, you know, your rights are your rights to an advocate, which admits that if you need an advocate, there's a potential for things to be going really bad. So advocacy is not going to solve. You know, some of the structural, some of the cultural, some of the practice issues.
2: But it's a good start, because most people aren't getting access to an advocate at all now, so this opt-out system in the review, for example, I think is a positive if step. If it's funded. If it's funded adequately. Yeah, advocate. there are and massive funding it, yeah. implications, I agree. Yeah.
4: And, and yeah, I mean, the, the, the role, of the, the change in role of advocates is actually really interesting, and there's a really big potential to do it terribly, and there's a really good big potential to do it well, but it'll depend on providers of advocacy services and commissioners of advocacy mm. services and whether they're with the program or not.
2: That's the thing, I mean, we're saying that these are little changes, but I think the recommendations are actually big changes and have big implications.
1: Maybe, I mean, it, 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 it depends, it depends how they're funded. I mean, going back to your original point about um, service user engagement involvement in it, I mean, I, I, you know, it, it's a hell of a lot better than it would be in many, many countries in the world. I mean, it would be unthinkable to have that level of service user involvement in most countries, I would say. And I think that sometimes, you know, we're very critical of, you know, the state of things in the UK. And, you know, sometimes we need to kind of big ourselves up and say, actually, this is huge compared to other countries, mm. but it's not good enough. And I think that's the issue. It is not fit for purpose. So it is so much better than what other countries might be doing, but, but it's not enough. And I think one of the reasons is because, and I think I write about this, is that we are positioning um, people who use services as one set of stakeholders amongst many as opposed to centering their voices. And because we're seeing yeah. them as one set of stakeholders, con- the, the whole Mental Health Act review is a balancing act between their needs and their wishes, and the needs and wishes of you know, people essentially on the other side. And that's where you end up with very, very little shift in the status quo, whereas if we actually listened what people are saying, and if we centered their wishes, I think you 'd get something very different. What would it look like? you think I think some of the things that um, some of the themes that we found in um, the Hearing Forces Network alternative review were, for example, a focus on you know, abuse being institutional and racism being institutional, um, where I think there 's a lot more um, complexity is around the conversation around uh, uh, um, detention and abolition detention i don 't think there is any consensus. Within um, you know any group of people around that, and I think these are highly charged, highly complex conversations, and it's not as simple as to say, as the review says, well, it just is what it is, and we're just going to shift the dial a little bit. You know, I think there are many. I think it's uh, you know it's a I think you, you kind of suggested this as a game of like three-dimensional chess almost, yeah. because there are so many competing ideologies and voices within it, and I think we need to attend to them. So I think some things would be clearer like around abuse, I think. And some things I think would be more complex. Mm.
0: I do wonder if, and this has been my experience of attempts to look at the Mental Health Act over the years that there is a real tension also between social control and rights, because I know you wrote something which I found quite energising Mark and the Guardian uh, during the Mental Health Review process about really focusing on rights and a Bill of Rights but I suppose the problem that people have with rights is that people end up doing things you don't want them to do if if you know what I mean, in some sense it hasn't resolved that, I mean I'm not again I agree with you Rachel, it's not nothing and it has the potential to be something uh, what has been that that fundamental tension has just been ruled in one in very much in one direction exactly. which is that you know social control sort of triumphs out <laughs> over <laughs> rights yep. really in, in the end which was very much there in the 2007 review as well yeah and definitely. it was sort
1: of taken as a
0: given really
3: in this okay. one I found
1: and this is it and it's not given I'm not saying that that's the wrong yeah. answer, but it's not a given, and it doesn't explain. Yeah, well, complexity. if you look at what
3: I was reading on the train, which is mm. the uh, United Nations report of the special rapporteur on the right mm. of everyone to health, very much promotes a, that we should adopt a human rights-based mm. approach in mental health and in mental health legislation, and that doesn't seem to have been given serious consideration.
4: I would disagree. I think that that was the... That was a spectre at the table of every single discussion involved in the Mental Health Act Review. Right. I, I think if you read the Mental Health Act Review back, it's a shadow discussion about that issue you just raised about the conflict between rights and safety or social mm. control. However, you conceive it, mm. I think every single line almost of the Mental Health Act Review is a justification for why that approach. Cannot be implemented mm-hmm, in the real really. world. That that was
0: my perception from attending one of the mental health act review engagement events. Actually, as well. Yes, I. Yes, we understand. But mm. um, you know, but, you know that that conversation, a shadow conversation, I think, is actually
4: sort a, our a subtext yeah. kind of conversation. That's probably not a bad way of thinking about it. But, but I mean, yeah, you know, I, I think it's also really important that we. Like we do remember that lots of people put their their heart and their experiences and their time yep. to try and make this review. Like, and and it's worth noting they didn't suggest influence this review. The point was that they wanted to be that review. Yeah. And whether that's actually enacted by what came out of it is another thing. But people really did. Yeah. Put a lot of their time and their effort and. To an extent at, at personal risk um, into trying to make this into something. Yeah. The question is whether it fulfills that investment or not. Mm. I and think different people will feel differently about whether it does or not.
3: Yeah, I mean I would Absolutely. say hats off to them. Having been involved in the previous review, I was involved in the Mental Health Alliance around the time of the yeah. previous Mental Health Act review. We were constantly being told this is just about the wording of the legislation it's just about the conditions of compulsion we can't think more broadly, we can't make recommendations for services so in a way hats off, hats off to this lot who have felt able
4: to do that and felt it was important to do
3: that but,
4: but I think the, the thing that I, I would say is we have to be really careful not to fall into the, the myth that everything is about incremental change that follows a path that the idea that this is a stepping stone that has an inevitable next step, that's not really how policy works in the real world. It's not really how the real world works. It's not, things don't follow a kind of exponential curve to the perfect. They just kind of squiggle around. So the idea that this is, this is a stepping stone to the perfect world so we have to accept it and then we move on to the next stepping stone that will be better. Things might be very different in two years' time. Things might be very different in six months' time, to be honest. Um, we, can't, we can't just assume that everything we do is, is always building on the shoulders of giants and eventually we'll reach that perfect world and I think that's, that's sometimes where we fall down when thinking about mental health as it relates to politics because we just assume that if we have zero suicide initiative this year then we'll have, you know, a land of milk and honey in ten years' time, because everything will go in a particular direction. Yes. I, know,
1: I know I complained about the um, mental health manifestos being really boring, but I think what really struck me during um, the Mental Health Act review was the constant focus on, well, we won't, you know, if we do anything too exciting or too radical, it won't get through Parliament, and, and the press will go completely wild about it. And I think one of the things I think that's really important is despite the fact that we're having these really interesting I think exciting radical kind of mm. conversations in mental health I'm not sure they permeate the world outside of mental health I don't see them reflected in my friends conversations mm. I don't see that they don't get any traction in the news outside of like our little mental mm. health bubble so I think we need to do better at getting those ideas out there and having some of the conversations. Yes I
4: think, th- think the. The most difficult question for anyone to answer about what they want for their own mental health and the mental health of others is to answer honestly, without all of these other encroaching notions of reality and not appearing childish or petulant, is to answer the question of what world do you actually want? And at the minute, it goes right back to I think something I was saying at the start, um, there's no external pressure in mental health, we're not, you know, we're not a political block. That can exert pressure on where power lies so there isn't often an external vision of what the better world could be all there is is realpolitik stoicism and everything kind of spiraling down into well yeah we could do that but we can't get anyone to come to a meeting and you know i think you know i was talking about having grand ideas is terrible i think in some respects our grand ideas haven't been grand enough because they've been focused in the wrong place. They've been focused on how do we improve discourse rather than how do we envisage better worlds. I think on that note, we'll probably have to draw it to a close.
0: I, I had originally been planning to ask everyone about, you know, one idea, but the whole thing seems so complicated <laughs> to slightly diminishing. To, I have no ideas. I'll just what, tell you now. <laughs> to what we've talked about. So... Uh, To finish it off, I'll just say that we will put links to things that we've talked about and in particular things that both you, Mark, and Akiko have been deeply involved with the Hearing Voices Alternative Mental Health Act Review and uh, the National Service User um, uh, website, um, Mark, where you uh, gave a, what I thought was a really excellent kind of tour of the Mental Health Act and what uh, it was proposing and what, what, what was there and what wasn't there. But we'll put links to other things uh, on the website as well. Uh, just to add, that the best way to follow the podcast is to subscribe on our feed. Uh, you can do this by looking us up at Discussions in Tunbridge Wells, on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at P S Y and that will take you to our Facebook feed or Twitter feed. But for now, really, it just remains for me to thank all of you. Thank you, Mark and Akiko. Really so very much appreciated you coming and speaking so fully and frankly. And thank you, Rachel and Anne, thank for you. making it up to thank London. You. Quite fun to do a, an outside <laughs> broadcast. Uh, our timings around these podcasts is clearly a little bit haphazard. Uh, it's quite hard to get the time and the resources to do them. But hopefully, we'll be back with another one before 2 in Thanks.